For those who are paying attention, my standing height is the equivalent of JP's sitting height. <laughs> That's very, very sad. Um, yeah, so very exciting news um, for us for the next few weeks. We're going to try to do our best, um, you know, to make it happen. In a few weeks, we'll be meeting back at Heart House once again. The last, you know, few months, we have been stressing, you know, we, we are Christians not because we meet together on a Sunday in a given room. We're Christians because we adhere to the gospel, we believe in the word, and we are praying and fellowshipping community, regardless of whether we're able to meet on Sundays as well. Um, that doesn't mean that there's no value in gathering together. And so I know many of us have been uh, waiting and longing to meet together once again. And so if everything goes to plan, uh, we'll be seeing one another in three Sundays, three Sundays from today. And so, yeah, very exciting. Um, also, as Pastor JP, as he announced, the essentials class, um, you know, we're doing the best we can to equip our people to not just have to depend on a Sunday for us to get fed, not just depend on a Sunday for us to be able to worship and to pray and to read the word. And so from the very beginning of the year, we've been stressing, you know, what it looks like when a church is equipped to be the church outside of the four walls of the church. And so uh, this is one more way in which we want to arm and equip our people to do that as well. So learning how to worship, it's not only for people who, you know, want to lead worship from a stage. Um, it's for people also who want to learn to just worship on their own at home, you know, in their living room with a guitar and just, you know, give their heart to God and not have to wait, you know, for someone else to lead worship on their behalf, but just to be able to connect with the Lord one-on-one -on -one as well. So, um, yeah, it's a very important um, way in which we connect with the Lord. And so we wanted to do everything we can to equip our people to do that, whether we're able to meet um, or not, whether we're able, you know, however long COVID goes on for, and there are no guarantees again, we're doing the best thing we can to equip all of our people to be able to read the word on their own, to pray on their own, and also to worship on their own as well. So, yes, uh, at the very beginning of this year, it feels like it was years and years and years ago. At the beginning of 2020, we started of the year by highlighting two different things that we're going to focus this year. Little did we know that COVID was coming. There, COVID was nowhere in sight. Or maybe it was in sight, but we didn't know if it was going to make it outside of China. But at the very beginning of the year, uh, we stress on two things that we wanted to build up on this year. Number one is reading the word. And so we started accountability groups and a Bible reading plan for us to read the Bible together throughout the year. And then the second thing that we wanted to highlight and we wanted to focus on was prayer. If we end this year, 2020, having learned those two things, having cemented in us the habit, the discipline, and the joy of reading the word for ourselves and also praying um, then we've had a very, very successful year for us. We didn't really know what this 2020 would pan out to be. And I wanted to just start off on a light note. 
um, for this year, uh, something that has brought me particular joy uh, is just um, discovering these memes that have been circulating online regarding the year 2020. And so um, this is the first one that I want to share with you. This is me being prepared for 2020 and 2020 just hits you right in the eyes. <laughs> this is the second one. If 2020 was an avocado, this is what it would look like. All pit, very little flesh. The third, 2020 every second. It feels like an infomercial. But wait, there is more. Um, this is another one. So far, 2020 is like looking both ways before crossing the road and then getting hit by an airplane. Um, if 2020 was a bag of chips, it would look like this. Orange juice and toothpaste. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever drank orange juice after brushing your teeth? It is pretty terrible. So that's what 2020 would be if it was a bag of chips. Um, this is what 2020 looks like. It is, you know, on the brink of falling. And the only thing holding us up and holding us together is Tiger King. <laughs> and uh, this is the last one that I have for you. Uh, at the end of 2020, God says to us, it's just a prank, bro. Camera is right there. As if it was a hidden camera prank. Um, so that's all the memes that I have to share with you. Hopefully that brought you joy. Um, yes, because as optimistic as we've been about this year, and as, as much as we're taking this um, as best as we can, and rolling with the punches and making the best out of every situation, we do have to admit that it's a very out-of-the-ordinary year. Um, we could not have expected half the things that have happened this year. Um, and it has been a very unique challenge and very unique opportunity for us to grow in our faith, perhaps in ways that we haven't been challenged in before. And so today, I wanted us to start off um, a sermon series. It's a seven-part sermon series on this one topic, and the topic is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. We're going to go line by line over the Lord's prayer for the next six Sundays. And the Lord's prayer reads like an outline of sorts. Many scholars will say it's not just that Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray verbatim, just like these are the magical words that you put together, you string together, and that is the way that you ought to pray. It's more than just something to recite. It's actually providing us an outline of sorts of how we ought to approach God in prayer. And so wherever you are tuning in from today, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to give you just a second for you to find your place. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And I'm going to start in verse 5 all the way to verse 15. And this is how it reads. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, quarantine yourself in your room 
and go before the Father in secret. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you need what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. So today's message is titled, Teach Us to Pray. We see the Lord's Prayer being introduced in a, in a different part of the Bible, but basically the same um, substance in Luke 11, where the disciples are on the brink of going out and doing ministry, and they've been watching Jesus do something all throughout their time in ministry, and that has been that Jesus will periodically find somewhere to go on his own, and he prays to the Father. And as these disciples are, have been watching him doing miracles, signs, wonders, preaching, as he's been doing all these things, they've noticed that there's something that they themselves need to learn as well. And that is not preaching. That is not doing signs and wonders and miracles. They come to him asking, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray. It is something so essential it is a non-negotiable when it comes to disciples who are about to launch into ministry. And so they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And that is how Jesus answers. He gives them this outline. Now, I was raised, as many of you know, in Chile. And so for many years, for 18 years, I lived in Chile. I was born there and I lived all throughout you know, my life up until graduating from high school. And uh, for those who don't know, Chile is actually a very Catholic country. And so growing up, many of my friends were actually Catholic. And so they would do these different things uh, that I found pretty interesting. They would, you know, do certain signs. They would recite different things a certain number of times. They would, um, you know, pray in front of these different statues, different ways in which they were expressing their Catholic faith. And for many years, as I watched them doing that, I didn't really understand the reason behind that. So for example, if they were going through something very hard, they would go to their priests and the priest would tell them, this is your solution to this. I want you to recite the Lord's prayer 10 times a day. And so they would take this recipe, this, you know, this, this uh, game plan, they would take it home and they would recite verbatim the Lord's prayer 10 times a day. And they were given the assurance that that in itself will have the power to change your mind, to break off addiction, to deal with your problem. Um, and they were, uh, you know, they were, they were told that this is the, the magical formula, the silver bullet to get you where you need to be. 
I also didn't just grow up in Chile, but I surprisingly grew up in a Korean church, a first generation Korean church. Um, and it was a wonderful church other than the fact that I didn't really speak much Korean. So my Korean was super limited. And one of the things that they taught us to memorize growing up, it was the Lord's prayer. And I don't know if you've watched a non-Korean speaking person be able to sing along an entire K-pop song just phonetically. They just memorize it. It's basically muscle memory. That's basically what I did with the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. So I can honestly recite you the entire Lord's Prayer, the, the, the old you know, language version. Um, and as long as you don't stop me halfway through, I can get through the entire thing just phonetically. 주기도문으로 예배를 끝나겠습니다. 하늘에 계신 우리 아버지여 이름이 거룩히 you know I can recite the entire thing and as long as you don't stop me in the middle I'll be able to recite the entire thing. I can even, I even have the intonations down at the very end it goes 대게 나라와 권세와 영광의 아버지께 영원히 있사옵나이다. You know that's how it ends. And so I can recite the entire thing verbatim just phonetically. And for years and years I had no idea what it meant. Like no, zero idea what it meant. And so it wasn't until much later that I actually learned what the Lord's Prayer actually meant. And that's when I started, you know, to attend an English-speaking church in college. And so my point is, I don't want us for the next six weeks to learn about the Lord's Prayer, thinking that it's going to be just a magical formula that we can recite. We don't really need to engage our minds. We don't really need to engage our hearts. We don't need to break open the passages. We don't need to meditate on what does it mean when we call God, we call him our Father. What does it mean when we say that he is in heaven? What does it mean to ask him for our daily bread this day? And so I don't want us just to... Um, acquire knowledge, just head knowledge regarding what the Lord's Prayer is about. But I want us at the end of the six, six weeks to be able to recite the Lord's Prayer, knowing what we are talking about, knowing what it means. And so today, my uh, simple task is to set it up so that for the next six weeks, we can go into the Lord's Prayer with that mentality. And so today what I'm going to be addressing isn't the Lord's Prayer itself, but it's the pericope that leads us into it, the little fragment that leads us into it. Because before Jesus tells us what to pray, he tells us how to pray. He tells us why we pray. And it is very important for us to wrap our minds around this before we embark on breaking down and analyzing and meditating on the Lord's Prayer itself. And Jesus gives us two examples of what not to do. So the first way that Jesus lays it out for us is there's a way to pray like a hypocrite. And there's a way to pray like a pagan. In some versions, it reads as a Gentile. And the equivalent of it, it is a pagan. So someone who does not know God. And to pray like a hypocrite, it means that you do things in order to be seen by men. It means it's all about the show. It means it's all about the performance. What people perceive your prayer life to be, that is what it is. And that is because this is someone who prays longing for acceptance that comes from others. It's not coming from the Lord himself. It means that what I look like as a spiritual person 
It is determined by how others view my spirituality. And so if I'm very loud in my prayers, if I'm verbose, if I'm articulate and I bring in all these different cross references and I bring in all these different flowery words, then it means that I'm very spiritual. And that's what it looks like to pray like a hypocrite. And then on the other side, praying like a pagan or praying like a Gentile, as someone who does not know God, this passage talks about it. It's someone who says a lot of different things, a lot of empty words, hoping that their spirituality would be earned by men. That means that you yourself are able to earn your hearing before God. Your many words are going to earn you your hearing. Your many prayers, your your hours clocked in, that is what is going to earn you acceptance before God. And that is when we live a life where we crave acceptance, but it doesn't come from God. And instead it comes from others. So I want you to just take a second to look at this diagram, this, this chart, praying like a hypocrite to be seen by men. What does that look like? What does it look like to build a spiritual walk and to build a life that is wrapped around acceptance that comes from others? What my house church leader thinks about me, what my peers think about me, what my pastors think about me. That is where my acceptance comes from. And therefore, when I pray, I'm going to make sure that I'm seen by everybody. I'm going to make sure that everybody hears what I have to pray. I'm going to be, I'm going to make sure that I do it in as much of a visible place as possible. And I'm going to, you know, whether I'm spiritual or not, I better sound like it. And on the other side, praying like a pagan. What does it look like to pray like someone who does not know God? Someone who's earning their acceptance. Somebody who's earning their audience before God. Someone who believes that the acceptance that the Father extends to us, it comes from our own actions. If I pray this much, if I pray these words, then I will be accepted by God. And so we have these two ways in which Jesus asks us, don't do this. Don't pray like a hypocrite to be seen by others and don't pray like a pagan because you're not trying to earn your acceptance before God. You need to know that your acceptance does not come from what others think about you or from what you yourself feel like you earn before God. Warren and David Wiersbe, they say this, when ministry becomes performance, then the sanctuary becomes a theater The congregation becomes an audience. Worship becomes entertainment. And man's applause and approval become the measure of success. But when ministry is for the glory of God, his presence moves into the sanctuary. Even the unsaved visitor will fall down on his face, worship God, and confess that God is among us. And so this is basically what Jesus is saying. Make sure that your prayer life, all your spiritual works, all your spiritual disciplines, they're not done as a hypocrite and they're not done as a pagan, as someone who is an unbeliever, someone who does not have a relationship with God and is trying to earn their acceptance before him. When we pray 
before God. We do it from the starting point of being accepted by him. Not because of how loud we're praying, not because how visible things are, not because of the showmanship and the the execution of my grand prayer. It doesn't come because I prayed just long. It doesn't come from anything that I have done. But our starting point is we've been accepted by God because of what someone else has done for me, what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so before Jesus tells us what to pray, he tells us how to pray and why we pray. There's example of praying like a hypocrite. There's example of praying like a pagan. And although Jesus doesn't say, don't do these and do this explicitly, we get a sense of how he wants us to pray. So not just what not to do, but what to do. And we get a clue from a word that is repeated 18 times during the three chapters that cover the Sermon on the Mount. He repeats one word 18 times throughout three chapters. And it's repeated six times alone in the 11 verses that we just read. And the word is Father. The word is father. And so when we are called to pray, we're called to pray, not like a hypocrite. We're called not to pray like a pagan, but pray like you have a father. Pray like you have a father to be seen by God alone, to be earned by God alone. Because our acceptance comes from God alone. We pray like we have a father who's listening. We pray like we have a father that loves us and pursues us. We pray like we have a father that's leaning his ear toward us. And so we no longer need to be seen by others. We don't need to make it as visible as possible. We don't need to do it just at a mic. We don't need to do it just in front of other people. Because we're no longer doing this in order to get acceptance by others. We also pray like we have a father because Jesus Christ has earned our acceptance on our behalf. And this is the beauty of the gospel and the gift and privilege of prayer. We pray to be seen by God alone because we are able to approach the throne of grace with boldness, simply because Jesus Christ earned us that spot as a righteous son before a holy father. We don't pray for others. We don't pray in order for us to be accepted by God because he has already accepted us, but we pray like we have a father. A few weeks ago, when Pastor JP um, asked me a question, uh, we were doing the living room session uh, here at the office uh, for a Sunday service, and he asked me one question. He asked me, what was the one thing that has helped my prayer life? And I didn't have an answer prepared because I didn't know that he would ask that. But my answer to him was learning to relate to God as a person. Learning to get it in my mind and get it in my heart that whenever I fix my eyes on God 
and I begin to pray, I'm not praying into empty space. I'm not praying towards an idea. I'm not praying into just a philosophy or a a school of thought. I'm praying to an actual person. Like there's a person in front of me that is listening to every word I say. So for example, let me give you this example. If I had, um, let's say Stella. If Stella was standing here right next to me, this was Stella right here, and I needed to tell her something, I wouldn't be like, Stella, who, <laughs> who, um, uh, I don't know. I, um, <laughs> Stella, would you like to have dinner with me? No, like I would turn to her and I would ask her, Stella, do you want to have dinner with me? And it's not like I'm doing it for anybody else. It's not like I'm, you know, putting it on social media and I'm saying it really loud for anybody else to hear. The person I'm talking to is Stella and she's right here. And therefore I address her and I talk to her as if she was a person, although that's debatable. Um, she is a person that is listening to the words that are coming out of my mouth. And I'm relating to her from person to person, heart to heart. And so in the same way, when we pray before God, we're not praying for other people to hear us. We're not praying just to be accepted by, by God because of our many words. We're praying to an actual person. Now, Ravi Zachariah, the, um, he's a theologian and an apologist who you know, died not too long ago. This is one of the things that he said, one of the many things he said. And he said, the intellectual answers are important when it comes to Christianity. But intellect alone cannot help us navigate the minefield of pain and suffering. Other worldviews also offer intellectual answers. But Christianity alone offers a person. Christianity alone offers a person. Not an easy answer. Not a cheap answer. Not a recite this thing ten times and this, your problem will be solved. It doesn't offer us just a logical answer. It's because X, Y, and Z, and this is why these things are happening in your life. But Christianity offers us a person, a person who has volition, a person who has feelings, a person who has thoughts, plans. And so this is something so important for us to meditate on, no matter how long it takes us. This is a point that we need to camp out at and park at. Just for, you know, for however long we need to, before we move on to, okay, so what do I need to pray? The fact that we're praying to someone, praying to a person. And from this place of knowing that it is a person, Jesus teaches us to pray what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gives us the example of someone who's not just doing ministry for ministry's sake. And he's not just praying because he has to clock in these hours. We see an example of someone who has a very real and very intimate relationship with this person that we cannot see. And over and over, all throughout the Gospels, he points people in that same direction. He breaks the stereotypes that God is just a distant deity that's powerful enough to fix every problem, and yet he's not acquainted with anything that's happening in your life. He breaks off that misconception, and he calls him my father, our father. And from that place, we are free, and we are empowered 
to pray. Not just to say words, not just to sound spiritual in front of other people, but actually to connect with a person. And so from that place, Jesus teaches us this is how we ought to pray. And he calls us to pray this. Our Father, we call out not to a judge who doles out sentences or a genie who answers our wishes or a taskmaster that intimidates us into obedience, but a Father. And he isn't just a father, but he's our father. He relates to you and I, we who are dead, we who are lost, we who are broken and dead in our sins have now been drawn near. We've been adopted into his family. He says in heaven, he's a father who knows us intimately and provides for us unfailingly, but he's also in heaven. He's enthroned in majesty. He's surrounded by worship, adored by creatures, elders, angels, sovereign in power, uncontested in might. This is the father that is in heaven. His name is holy. His name is sacred. His name is set apart. Holy other. This is the name that is above every name. And there is no God like our God. There's no power that can compare. There's no principality that can measure up. His name alone was and is and is to come. And long after we are gone, his name will still remain. We cry out for his kingdom, his lordship, his reign to come, his justice, his mercy to come. And we cry out for his perfect and awesome will to be done, for it to invade and fill this earth just as his kingdom and his will is in heaven, a kingdom that knows no end and a king who is perfect in wisdom and mighty in power. We cry out to the father to give us this day, not some undefined day in the future, but this day we need our daily bread, what we need to make it through this day, the provision that we need this day. And our needs aren't just physical, but spiritual as well. We aren't just needy in the physical, but we're also needy in our souls. We need forgiveness. We need restoration. We need redemption. We need acknowledgement that our debts on our front before God have been forgiven. And that same forgiveness that we ask from God, we extend it to those who have sinned against us. We recognize that we need guidance and protection and intervention as we face temptation in this life. And we ask for deliverance from evil to a father who is caring, to a God who is mighty, to a savior that has ultimately delivered us from death and punishment. So we ask for his deliverance every day. That is just a preview of what we'll be talking about the next six weeks. But it's going to make all the difference if as we are going through this prayer together, verse by verse, we do it with the acknowledgement that we're praying to a person because God has accepted us, because God has brought us near, and he's intimately acquainted with our lives. That makes prayer a joy. I don't know about you guys, but I find it very difficult to just do something because I need to do it. 
and I know that I have to do it. And so I do it. And so I'm asked to pray. And so, okay, I'll have to pray. And of course I need to pray. Of course I need to read my Bible because I'm a pastor, you know, because it's my job. And there's so many different reasons why I ought to pray. Yes. But it makes all the difference when I take the time to acknowledge that God is a person, that there is no striving, there's no performance, there's no magical incantation and combination of words that will get me the acceptance that I need. He's already accepted me, not because of anything I've done, not because of anything I've prayed, but simply because what Jesus Christ has done for you and done for me. That is a liberating thought. That alone can empower our prayer lives. What does this look like on a daily basis? Maybe this is something that will work for you. Something really silly that I do at times, you know, is when, when I know that I, I need to pray, Yes, I'll, you know, I'll get rid of distractions and maybe I'll turn on an MP3. You know, I'll, I'll take my journal out. I'll take, you know, my uh, Bible out and I'll set it up, you know, so that I'm not distracted. But one of the first things I do, especially when I find myself just going straight into prayer and not really thinking about it, not really meaning any of the things that I say, I will stop myself in the middle of it and I will take a deep breath and I will ask the Lord, Lord, are you here? Lord, are you here right now? Like I'm, I'm sitting in my couch at home. Are you sitting right next to me? Are you, are you here in this living room right now? If I'm at a cafe, you know, I'll close my eyes and I look like a crazy person and that's okay. I'll close my eyes and I'll try to do the best I can to imagine Jesus sitting right across from me. And until I get to that point, I won't, I know that I won't feel like I'm praying to somebody that somebody's actually listening. And so I'll ask, Lord, are you here? Are you here right now? Are you listening? Help me feel like you're here. Help me feel like you're near. And so I'll take however long I need to until that realization comes until I find myself. Oh, okay. I'm not just talking to empty space. There's actually somebody on the other end, somebody who's listening to every word that I'm saying, somebody who's receiving my heart, somebody who knows my thoughts, and somebody who appreciates this time that we spend together in communion and in prayer. And so maybe that's something that will help you in a prayer walk as well. Just taking whatever time you need, not just to, okay, I'm going to pray. Okay, I'm going to turn on my prayer switch on. And okay, God, this is what I need, blah, 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 blah. And like five minutes go by and you realize, I don't know what I've been saying. I feel like I'm just talking at, at nobody. And I, I, I don't feel like I'm actually talking to somebody who's listening. I don't feel like this prayer uh, is, is, I don't mean anything I'm saying in this prayer. And so taking whatever time you need to come to that realization, to get rid of all the distractions and remind yourself that God is real. He's alive. He's listening. He's waiting That's one of the reasons why often in our worship services, we start with prayer because often our hearts aren't ready to just jump into worship and okay, just show me the lyrics of the first verse. And now, you know, I'm ready to connect with the Lord. Sometimes we just need that space to be reminded. Oh, that's right. I'm singing to a person and the words, although they're pre-written, you know, although, you know, they're, they're written for me and they're queued up on the screen. 
Like, I actually want to mean these words. I actually want this to not just be something that someone wrote and someone's making me sing, but I actually want it to be a confession of my heart. I want to mean every word that I sing. And if my heart isn't there, then God help my heart get there. So this is what we will be doing for the next few weeks, going line by line through the Lord's Prayer until it becomes more than just rhetoric, more than just something that you can recite out of just muscle memory. I want it to mean something to us, especially during this time where we're being called to pray, we're being called to contend, we're being given that secret place that Matthew 6 talks about, where we shut the door and we connect with our Father. And we pray not because we're surrounded by many people. We're not praying to be heard by other people. We're not praying in order for us to be accepted. But starting from the place of knowing that we've been accepted, knowing that the Father is listening, knowing that the Father cares. For many of us, especially, uh, it kind of depends on, on, on your upbringing and also your personality. But for many of us, one of the biggest hurdles is to get to the point where we actually believe that God cares about you as an individual. Not y'all as a collective. Because God can care, you know, in a very general and unspecific way for all of creation. But he cares about you. He cares that you are going through something right now. He cares that you have anxiety over this issue right now. He cares that you need to make this decision and you're having a hard time making this decision. He cares that, you know, the plans that you had for this year, you know, they've had to go through some big revision. He cares that you can't see your family right now. He cares that whatever it is that you're going through in life, he actually cares about that. And he's deeply acquainted with that, and there's nothing that's too small for him to take note of. Often we gloss it over thinking, well, he has better, bigger things to take care of. He's not going to listen to my prayer about this family issue that I'm having. He's not going to listen to this prayer about my finances. He's not going to listen to this prayer about this decision that I need to make. He has bigger things to take care of. And often that is one of the quickest ways to kill our prayer life, to think that he is too busy to deal with someone like me. Too busy to care about the small, trivial things in my life. And so my encouragement to all of us, it is start from that place. You're speaking to a person and not just any person. A person who loves you, who's, who already knows every thought. He already knows everything that you deal with. He knows all the things that you're praying through and wrestling through, all the burdens that you carry. He knows all these different things, and he's simply waiting for you to shut the door and meet with your heavenly Father. Then prayer becomes a joy. Then it becomes a place of refreshment. Then it becomes a place where you're not drained, but you're actually filled up again when you know that you're meeting with God. So I want to just close with a time of prayer as I ask Pastor David to come back up. For the last few weeks and, and perhaps months, we as a church, we've gone through a lot. And it's not just our church, but it's the global church. There's so many different things that we're grappling with and wrestling with for the first time, perhaps in a long time. There's many things that we don't really 
know how they'll pan out. There's so much uncertainty, so many differing opinions, so many articles out there, so many good points out there, so many, you know, so many things to look through. And one of the many things that are on the table for us to wrestle through and think through is the issue of racism. And perhaps it's not as, you know, front and center uh, for those who are not very connected with what's happening in America right now. But it's more than just America. It's more than just something that's an isolated event that only affects a certain nation with a certain history. Something that the global church is starting to realize is that there's racism everywhere. And it starts from a heart that judges other people, that looks down on different people, forgetting that we ourselves were rejected, we ourselves were dead in our transgressions. We ourselves had no hope and had no future. And God was the one to bridge that gap for us. It's less about racism itself. It's actually about the gospel. Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe that we ourselves did not earn every blessing that we have? There's nothing that could have earned us the blessings that we have. People who have been forgiven. People that have been set free. People that have been given a second, third, fourth chance. That is what it means to believe in the gospel. To know that that is our position. It starts with the gospel. I wanted us to close today with, you know, an old hymn. If you were to ask even a non-Christian, you know, tell me one song that you know. One Christian song that you know. Nine times out of ten, they'll say, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is the one ubiquitous, you know, well-known song that even non-Christians will know. Something that many people don't know is that it was written by a slave trader in the 1700s. This was someone who was the worst of the worst. Someone who did not deserve mercy. Someone who thought the wrong things about certain people. Somebody who did not view someone as human, but as goods to be traded and sold. And what turned this man from a slave trader later to an abolitionist? It wasn't a political agenda. It wasn't a program. It wasn't just education or awareness. It was actually the gospel. There's a story that is told about him. He was in a slave trading ship in the middle of the ocean. And then there was a really bad storm. And there was, they were going down. Like there was a hole in their ship. And so he cried out to the Lord. He himself wasn't Christian. But his mother was. And his mother had taught him about prayer and about the Bible and about Jesus. And so as a last ditch effort, he cried out to this Jesus that he had only heard about. And he said, if you're there, 
help me make through this, uh, make it through this, save my life. And his life was spared. The surprising thing after that is that he didn't change right away. He still continued for some years in the slave trade. He still continued doing what he already knew his conscience told him not to. He continued to live a fallen life for several years before he started to take concrete steps towards becoming one of the greatest abolitionists that we know of. One of the primary voices that spoke out against slavery and that reframed the life of someone of a different skin color and elevated it to that of value, dignity, and worth. Although it was many years before he got to that point, in the middle of that conversion, after he had given his life to God, he wrote the song. As someone who was still fallen and trying to figure it out, Someone who knew it wasn't after he got his act together. It was while he was trying to figure it out. While he was trying to grapple with the implications of the gospel. And how it affected his decisions. How it affected his life. How it affected his finances. His occupation. It was in the middle of that that he wrote the song. Amazing grace. How sweet this sound. The saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This is our position today as well. We cannot believe that we have all the answers. We cannot believe that we know exactly how theology and how the gospel plays out. And we're in the middle of that wrestle. What does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to believe the Bible? What does it mean to walk out the gospel in today's context. We're still figuring it out. But my encouragement to all of us, you know, is during these times of such uncertainty, of unprecedented shakings, things being exposed that we didn't even know were there, things that have reached a boiling point that that we're building up for generations. In the middle of that, we as a church have been given this beautiful thing called the gospel. And that is the power for transformation. That is the power to see things rightly, to change. And it reminds us that we're still in need of grace. We're still in need of mercy. 